Welcome to the podcast. This is Fergus. And today I'm excited to talk about Tiny Dancer. It's a campaign by Adam and Eve DDB in London for the insurance arm of John Lewis department stores. And for many of you who uh, have seen it, you'll know that John Lewis produces some of the most powerful and delightful Christmas commercials. And they've been doing it for about 10 years. They include spots like uh, Monty the Penguin, Maz the Monster, and last year, 2017, I think it was, or 2018, they did the Elton John-inspired Some Gifts Are More Than Just a Gift. Uh, you can watch them on YouTube, and they're just phenomenal. Some of the best work in the world, in my opinion. Uh, each campaign, I think, really captures so beautifully the magical imagination of a child that sort of lives deep down in all of us. Uh, but in this episode, we're going to talk about the story behind Tiny Dancer. It's a uh, campaign for their financial services arm. And its goal was uh, creating a homeowner's insurance sales while remaining within the spirit of the John Lewis brand. The campaign not only had to sell insurance, but had to drive incremental sales to the department store itself. And that was a prerequisite. It had to do both. And that was a challenge for the strategy. In the U.S., we have Allstate, Geico, State Farm, etc. And they appeal to a different uh, emotion than John Lewis. And while John Lewis's approach might arguably not be sustainable as a year-round campaign, it's certainly profoundly original. So this is Tom Sussman. He tells us about how they positioned John Lewis as insurance for when life really goes right. This is the story behind Tiny Dancer. Enjoy. Welcome, Tom Sussman, who's a planning partner at Adam and Eve DDB, uh, here to spend some time with us today. Good afternoon, Tom. Hey, Fergus. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. It's great to have you. And, uh, you know, we, we connected through the, uh, the case study that I read. Uh, what we're mm -hmm. going to be talking about today has won many awards and uh, has been featured in a lot of different industry and notable locations, such as APG, IPA. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved it right away because I've seen the work uh, over, over a period of time. And it's, it's, it's an amazing brand. And what drew me to this was the fact that this was a unique sort of spin on doing, uh, extending a brand, which I thought was very cool. And yeah, it's, you guys did an amazing job of maintaining the integrity of the brand, which I know was kind of key to where you were hoping for it to end up. And for that's those right, who don't right. know, tell us, tell us a little bit about the John Lewis brand that, that people are familiar with. <laughs> right. So um, in the UK, uh, the John Lewis brand is, 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 is a household name. And, and it's not just a household name. It's one of the most trusted brands in Britain. Um, and I think um, what people know about it is it's always had incredible quality and service. Like when you go to a John Lewis department store, it, it, it is not like going to the other department stores in the British High Street. People genuinely care and want to help. And largely that's enabled by their partnership model. So all employees, um, be they people walking the shop floors or people in the, you know, the high tower of offices, um, they're all partners of the company. Now, on top of that, it's worth saying that the last 10 years, has seen them almost create a genre of advertising in the UK, which is first and foremost one built on emotion, quite light, I would say, on uh, product information, but built on uh, sentiment and emotion. Um, the sort of Richard Curtis <laughs> of advertising, if you like, 
um, and also one that's built at Christmas. So it, um, as well as being a campaign's new advertiser of the decade, uh, you could also argue that John Lewis is the advertiser of Christmas and, and sort of pretty much invented a whole new genre of Christmas advertising for the UK market. I mean, it is extraordinary. In, you know, in preparing for the, the call today, Mm. I watched a bunch of the spots last night with my wife and we both <laughs> are, we're both welling up with tears because it's, oh. it's genuinely wonderful stuff. But tell That'd us about what was unique about your charter as you began to work with the financial services ex- brand extension of John Lewis. Tell us about that and, and what was the competitive right. landscape like? The insurance category, um, as you know, well, no, Fergus, is, 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 is brutal and largely based around quite stripped back, message heavy, uh, short term focused, um, hard sell advertising. And often the emotional focus of these adverts, particularly in the UK market, and I wouldn't like to speak of elsewhere, but it's usually around disaster. And it's essentially positioning insurance as something you only buy when life goes badly wrong. Um, And all of that, so whether it's like you say, price an item, a hard sell, or, or this sort of disaster, advertising all of that doesn't work when you try and factor in you've got john lewis which is the soft squishy trusted uh, brand much loved uh, by the british heartland so there was the pressure i think there's an additional pressure which i think we almost touched on we talk about brand extension marketing um john lewis at the time was doing two big campaigns a year um and this when we were talking uh about coming up with this new campaign in 2015, um, those two big campaigns, as ever, would be Christmas plus one other. And in 2015, that one other was going to be insurance. So the extra pressure, um, if there needed to be any more, which genuinely didn't, um, was that this needed not just to generate sales for insurance, which I guess would be relatively straightforward. There's, you know, Apart from worries of damaging the brand, you really could just flick off your gloves and go in hard with your sales message. But this year it had to do more than that because it's the only other big campaign and that meant it had to pay back to the overall master brand. So people who saw an insurance ad amid a category full of quite grubby, um, hard selling adverts had to see this ad and not only want to buy insurance, but love it enough to want to go and go walk into the nearest John Lewis department store and spend money there too. So let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got to uh, what ultimately ended up being the insight. Tell us um, tell us how this started. Was it a, was it a briefing from the client that then led to you and the team going outside and doing some primary research work, and or what was the approach that you took? So yeah, it was it was a brief from the client certainly, uh, and that meant walking back to the agency and having some sense of what we needed to do next. Um, there were the, the constrictions, as ever, set us free a little bit. So it shut down certain routes, which is really helpful for speeding up the process. So we know that this thing can't just sell insurance, it needs to pay back to the brand. And you go, okay, right, so that's immediately a whole series of things, routes, ways of doing things that are closed down. This is going to have to feel like a John Lewis campaign. 
Right? There is no way we can just step outside. But I mean, if you look at other brand extension marketing, and there's lots of excellent stuff done by, you know, big high street names like Tesco or whoever, um, all of it feels in keeping with the category it goes into, but doesn't really necessarily have to feel like the brand it comes from. That wasn't an option to us. So we needed immediately to make it feel like a John Lewis campaign. And that meant really trying to codify what a John Lewis campaign was made of. Um, the first thing is, yes, not hard to sell. It will have to be emotional. It will also have to have a super strong insight because uh, hopefully you notice when you, you sat down and went through all the old John Lewis campaigns, uh, yes, they're emotional. They will make you cry. And largely <laughs> that's because there's a clever little insight in there and um, that I guess feels very specific to you, but is very universal to the British public. Um, a clever little thing that crystallizes how you feel about something, even if you'd not considered it before. Um, so we knew we had to have that level of insight. And then on top of that, we had to be super famous. Um, this had to be something that wasn't just pilot high media. This really had to get people talking. So already um, in the need for emotion, in the need for insight, in the need for uh, fame, we're closing down certain routes. So those were the three terms that you guys identified as being the foundation of the John Lewis Brown in, uh, brand. Insight, emotion, and fame. Off the top of my head, yes. I know the uh, minute I get out of here, I think of a better three, but that was the three we wrote, we wrote down at the time. Insight, <laughs> emotion, and fame. Um, and, and I guess we, we, we kind of believed that if we nailed that insight, um, a lot of you know, the good stuff will come from it. Yeah, um, I mean, and it definitely reflects that. I mean, it's per certainly the communication, the essence of the communications would be that insight, emotion, and fame. Maybe the brand is a little different. I guess the thing that unlocked it a little bit was looking at the end line, which already existed, which if it matters to you, it matters to us. And we'd done a campaign before. This has been totally honest. I think a very good campaign, uh, which is you can definitely find online. I think we did two years previously, where... Um, a family are at home and all of the items in their home, which mattered to them, march out onto the front lawn, the front, you know, drive uh, their house in the front yard for a family photograph. And I guess the breakthrough was working out that we had made an advert, which was good and successful, not necessarily for the overall brand, but for insurance sales, uh, that was focused on the things that matter. And we hadn't looked at the why it matters. And Interesting. Why insurance? Yeah, the, yeah and, and it was a combination of uh, conversations with the client, uh, creative exploration, and also this quick and dirty quote that's mentioned, I think, in the case studies with, with, with people in department stores, which unearthed the fact that, you know, John Lewis shoppers were slightly different. Not only did they want high quality insurance to cover everything, the reason they wanted it, and we, we hope this was a reason that everyone really wanted insurance, just hadn't been talked about before. But the reason they wanted it was not because they wanted to guard against life going wrong, but they wanted not to worry or not to have to worry when life was going really right. When family life was really on fire and things were going brilliantly and you know kids were messing around at home and getting in trouble, they wanted not to have to worry about things being broken. They wanted that bit of life. That's the sort of rich, exciting, wonderful bit of life that you know memories are built from, uh, just to be able to happen without having to be that overprotective parent that stops it because they're worried about you know great 
Auntie Jane's vase being broken in the front room. Um, so I think so, the quote, yeah. I think the quote from the case study, I'll read mm. it out here that was, that went to that was when kids are having fun, things will get broken. No matter what I do, that'll happen. I just don't want to have to worry about it. That's it. That, that, that's the insight right there. And I guess when you hear something like that, um, yeah, it, 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 it makes the direction you're traveling in very, very clear. I mean, what we briefed the department with, if we're honest, we, we kept it nice and open. I, and I think we like to do that. We briefed this idea of simply the what or the why it matters. Find those stories of why that sort of insurance matters. And very quickly, work in this direction came out. So tell me about that yeah. because I, you know, I think as planners, there's a, there's different points of view on what you take to creative. There, there are right. some, there are groups of planners who feel that you have to come up with an insight and express it and articulate it as best you can. There are other planners who think that you have to come up with a thought starter idea that comes off of that insight <laughs> to try and bring it to life. What, yeah. what do you think? What do, what's your approach? Oh, great question. So I'm definitely a thought starter idea guy, probably to the point of fault. Um, but I would say almost everyone in this wonderful, crazy building I'm in uh, also are those people. Um, so yeah, I think we tried to get to something which is simple, is clear and insightful that you can't argue with. And you go, yes, that is the right direction of travel. And then demonstrate how exciting and interesting and broad that area is by providing many thought starter ideas. Tell us specifically what, mm. I'm really intrigued by that. So it's sort of a, it's sort of an agency department understanding that coming up with the thought starter idea. So how, how far do you take that? Or what form does that take? Can you give us an example or even an example in this case where, where what a thought starter idea was for this campaign? Yeah, I, God, that's going back. But yeah, I, um, I, th I would suggest that every planner in this building does it differently in terms of what qualifies a thought starter idea, but we all do it and we're all encouraged to do it. And in fact, I'd argue when we look at each other's briefs, which we do regularly, um, whether that be planning partners or strategy directors with the people that work into them, or just with our peers, um, what we spend time on is not necessarily agonizing over the proposition. I, I mean, I, I trust the talents of everyone here to get to a strategically correct and, and, and instructive proposition. What we, what we spend time really bouncing, as we call it, or messing around with throwing to each other are those thought starters, which is the other side of the coin. So not just instruction, but the inspiration. Um, now, how you construct one of those uh, is totally up to the individual. Um, I think the key is to keep it quite top line. So not to start writing characters and stories, but premises, if you like. So with this, I think there was all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I would be going back quite far, but I'm certain I wrote something down about a, a huge, uh, I don't know if you call this, call it this in America, but a grandfather clock um, that couldn't possibly be re replaced and just le left that open as a potential scenario. There was definitely stuff on there about the joy of mess and the joy of things being broken um, and how that sometimes doesn't matter. Um, but pretty open, pretty inconclusive, if that makes sense. But it just gives a little yeah. taste of a direction you could go in. Um, and I would say visuals often are just as important as the words you put on them. So um, I certainly encourage 
Um, and so does, I think, everyone here, really. The, the brief thing is as important as the brief. So and that was another work, thing. Yeah. Uh, that was one thing from the, uh, from the uh, case study that I thought was hmm. awesome because I think it's happened to every planner. Uh, when you guys wrote about the actual briefing, and I'd love, I'd love to hear you tell it when you invite everybody in. And I mean, everybody you said from the creative department was invited. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that creative briefing session? It was weird. Yeah, I can. That was, was simultaneously one of the more exciting moments in my career, one of the weirder ones. Um, so on John Lewis, we do like to brief the whole department when we can. Um, and we have a pretty big department here. Don't ask me for a head count, but um, it's pretty substantial. We're, we're not a small agency anymore. Um, and we briefed the whole department on it because I think most teams putting uh, ego to one side, which they do, we're not big on that here, um, understand that it's a privilege and a, and a joy to work on the account. And so we'd like, a, we'd like the chance. And I think that's just as important for the junior teams as the senior teams. So everyone gets in one room and we did it here in what we call the downstairs bar, which historically was the bar we used to come together. And it's huge and a big screen at one end and we'd take them through a few slides. I'm, uh, don't show them the brief and they can read that in their own time, but get pretty quickly to what that proposition is, who we're talking to and what the feeling should be, um, which was a John Lewis ad <laughs> and um, some ways in. And, and, and the most of the time, I think I spent talking about rabbiting on at 100 miles an hour about not just um, what matters, but why it matters to people, why it matters to have this trouble, worry, free insurance. Um, and this idea of insurance when life goes really right. Looked at everyone in the eye, went through my thought starters, and, um, and then everyone was silent. And it was sort of, you know, kind of terrifying, really. Um, and they all looked at me and there's a bit of blinking and a bit, and a bit of chatting and amongst themselves, <laughs> people whispering in each other's ears, looking at me uh, like I had just said something awful. And then, um, people filtered out and a few people came up to me and said, that's a really great, exciting brief. And then some people didn't. And then I guess things went quiet. And then I think the next thing I heard was, um, yeah, Rick Brim. And, um, he came up to me and he, he gave me the premise for what became Tiny Dancer, um, not, not long after that, really. He said, I've seen something and this is how it goes. And, and, and in one sentence summed it up. And um, I remember thinking, well, that's incredible and it will be incredible and it didn't need to be explained to be incredible, but my God, does that depend on the, us getting Elton uh, to give us the track? And he went, well, yeah, it does, but we reckon it'll be right. And um, anyway, we, we went and presented just that. We didn't, we didn't do alternatives, I don't think, if my memory serves. So the, the line the line from the case study says that uh, that 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 this mm. guy your 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 chief creative officer says uh, yeah. imagine a little girl in a homemade ballerina outfit doing her made up routine to Elton John and almost breaking everything in the house. That's right. That's absolutely right. And if it isn't that, it's near as damn it. Um, and he said we were on a spiral staircase. And it was it was just a passing in the corridor moment, really. And you just know that that's. Listen, we, we, we try not to get emotional about scripts because you know, there's all sorts of things that you know, can't happen. Be that you can't get the music or the client isn't as passionate about them as you are or maybe you've got it wrong, you know. But um, we knew it was good. We knew it was good. And then a fortuitous series of events meant that it could also be real. So it, 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 it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, John Lewis either has a love for Elton John <laughs> Or, which may equally be the case, that Elton John is just such a part of the fabric of English culture that his 
music throughout the decades just connects so deeply? Yeah. Um, it's very hard to know where that comes from. I don't think it's that John Lewis in love with Elton John. Uh, I, I don't think it's that it's the only music that um, Mr. Rick Brim listens to. I think it's incredible music knowledge. For whatever reason, whenever the opportunities come, there's always been a good fit with Elton. And I think it's, as you say, he has direct access to the hearts of the English nation. You know, whatever political beliefs or whatever point of view on the world or where they shop, um, it, he, he does tend to uh, have, have, you know, that direct line straight to the, straight to the heart and straight to the, to the feelings. And he, that's always been useful, I think, for John. I think there's also something great about Elton in that he's really not exclusive. It's a very inclusive sort of artist, right? So he's not... Yeah, you're right. That's he's, not, he's never going to make you feel awkward for not knowing who he is, you know, because he's so cool you wouldn't know. But at the same time, he's never going to make you feel like you've, you're listening to uh, sort of disposable top 10 hits. He's got more substance and poetry to him than that. And there is a, a, a really incredible universal appeal. Is there a belief in sort of... Um exposing some concepts to consumers before you produce anything. And I hate to use the word testing, but that's what I'm kind of talking about, pre-testing. Do you do that in any form? Yeah, I mean, we do. I think philosophically, we would believe in, yes, I, I, there's nothing wrong with exposing ideas and concepts to consumers or people. I think it's, it's a better word for them usually. Um, but we believe in doing it early and late. So... At a concept stage, let's find out what needs to be said or done in order to communicate what we need to communicate about our brand uh, to have the maximum commercial impact. We believe in that. Uh, and, and, there's no, and anyone who says they don't I, is, is missing a trick, right? So we genuinely believe in that. And we believe in working out what worked in market. So when it's out there, is it working? If it's not working, we need to change something. Um, Anyone who tells you that you know great work needs to um, time to get going—that's just not the case. If it's not working, it, it, it may never work. Um, yes, we believe that you need to leave it in market so that you can get this cumulative effect, this brand building effect. But if something's just not uh, not having any impact initially, that's an issue. So, knowing what the concept is to begin with, and knowing what is working when it's in market, we believe in now. The rest, what you do in the middle, I think comes down to the individual planner. I personally, um, I, I struggle a bit with pre-testing. And I struggle with pre-testing because I think if it was really the panacea that we'd all like it to be, if it really worked to make work fantastic, then all work really would be award-winning, amazing work. Um, but it, that just isn't the case as far as I can see. I think it's a great fail safe it can help people feel more comfortable with a piece of work make sure it is going to work and I, I absolutely understand that for any client that is spending a great deal of money you they may want that and that, that makes perfect sense to me um, but it's not necessarily something that I would want to pressure my clients to do I would rather trust in the instincts and the expertise of the marketeers at the brands we work with it which is extraordinary um, and the expertise and instincts of of the planners and creatives here. And, and I genuinely feel that that risk is, is, is a necessary one because the alternative is far riskier, which is to make something that is ignored. And it, it is so built by committee 
that is just not interesting. And, and that really is a risk. And that's really dangerous to spend a lot of money on. So I think that'd be my personal approach. But I think if you ask almost any planner here, they would say, yeah, early and late is, is preferable. Um, and, but then have varying degrees of comfort and, and familiarity with testing between. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it, you, you reminded me of this quote that I can't, I can't remember who said it, but it stuck with me. But it's the idea that you can, you can be right, but boring. Yeah. I think it was I think it was Weigel at at, Ken, at Wyden and Kennedy in Amsterdam. Oh, probably. I mean, he's a genius, obviously, but um, probably was something he said. I think being right and boring is kind of a paradox. I don't, I don't think that's actually possible. Do you know what I mean? So, but it's, it's yeah. you can either be right. I mean, you can be right or you can be boring, or you can be right and boring. Yeah, and and yeah. that's and that's the danger that you you're so right, but you're just not making you're not breaking through. It's oh, not quite, interesting. People are not paying yeah. attention. Now, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think there's a real danger of planners wanting to be right, actually. Um, and it's often the case that you go there and you've got this brilliant idea and you know that commercially and from a consumer research point of view and from every other point of view, this is the thing to do. Um, but my God, it's boring and, and, and doesn't cut through. And so, in fact, it's totally the antithesis of the thing to do. In fact, I, I think it's probably impossible to be right, really, in the grand scheme of things, if the work is going to be boring. And, and, and sometimes... It's, it, it's better to be interesting than, than adhere to what you consider to be uh, right to begin with. In fact, being wrong can sometimes be quite exciting. <laughs> it can sometimes deliver the results you needed in, in, a, uh, in the first place. So just one or two final things. Um, when you look back on this particular project uh, and this campaign, what did you learn or what, or what surprised you as a planner when you look back on this uh, campaign? There's a, few, there's a few things, you know, personal and otherwise. Um, I think it taught me that really there aren't, and well, there aren't any bigger challenges than this, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of pressure to deliver on a famous brand and do it well. And it taught me that it is just a planning challenge like any other. So it's not that they are uh, major league planning challenges and then easier to the peewee challenges. It's all the same thing. So that was the first thing I learned. I think... Um, secondly, fear about messing up with regards to that is really not useful <laughs> because if, if I'd really uh, paid attention to that, I think we would have ended up with something much safer, much more reflective of the insurance category that surrounded it um, and all like brand extension marketing that had gone before it and because of that, less effective. That was learned. And then the other thing is just to put faith in emotion. So um, last question would be about results and you guys gave some specific um all right statistics yeah. in the in the case study when i what i was what i was a little bit unclear of was the sort of the value draw that came back to the parent brand can you right. can you talk us right. through yeah. results and tell us about the results of the campaign as best and what you tracked and what the results were Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is the, is this the grilling bit <laughs> of our interview? <laughs> uh, but yeah, off the top of my head, I can definitely, I, I can definitely get into it. I think uh, John Lewis, like um, a lot of um, marketing brands, you know, strong marketing departments, uh, do believe and do invest in econometrics. And we're able to split out not only the effect of our campaign, but what it had an effect on. Um, so immediately we can see that when it went on air, our campaign had this 60% uplift on insurance sales. But also, it's through these econometrics that we now know that 
there was a 13.8 million pound uplift in sales for the journalist department store that can only be accounted for uh, by this insurance campaign, which is fantastic to think. It's it, it, it really pleasing to think that you've got these guys who saw an advert, which is definitely, there's no two ways about it, for selling insurance, but felt so much a part of the journalist brand that it reminded them, yes, I do love that brand. And, and yes, when I'm next out, going to the department store, that's the one I'll be going to. And yes, I would much prefer to spend money there than in one of its competing, competing stores. Tom Sussman, uh, planning partner at Adam and Eve DDB. Thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.